right, let's take our Bibles and open up to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. It is our desire to finish the chapter tonight. And I think one, two, three, yes, it's taken us four weeks to work through this chapter. And then we're in the home stretch, folks. We're in chapter 13. And uh, that's the last huh? 25 verses. Grace be with you all. Hey, that's the name of our church. Look at that. What a wonderful name. Amen. Grace. Okay. Well, um, last week, we uh, looked at the reasons why we were to sort of order our life aright. Uh, according to uh, this little four-point sermon of Paul's that he gave here in uh, chapter 12. He picks up in verse 18 to verse 24, and he gives us kind of like the reasons why, and in a nutshell, because God has been so good to us, folks. God has done so much for us. And uh, we've got uh, blessing upon blessing. We... We, we are not like under the law of Sinai, but we're under the grace of Zion. In verse uh, 22, you're coming to Mount Zion and under the city of the living God and all these things that are uh, included in there. Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Wow. Jesus, the God-man, God in the flesh. He is God as much God as God the Father is God. He is God. And to be able to come unto him, Praise the Lord. Well, we uh, finished there in verse 24, and um, we're going to now uh, pick up in verse 25, and Paul now concludes this powerful sermon with a charge to every Christian. And that's what we're going to look at now, these verses 25 to 29. It's like a charge given to us. And so let's begin with prayer, and then we'll begin in verse 25. Now, dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this wonderful study on Hebrews. And it's been over a year and a half, Lord, that we've been studying uh, the chapters, the verses, and the words. And uh, we've certainly uh, gone further, deeper, farther than we thought we would. And we thank you so much for it. We, we cannot learn enough. We cannot go far enough when it comes to spiritual things in the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, for uh, what we've been able to learn. Please help us to be uh, teachable tonight. Speak with our hearts, dear God. O oh, Holy Spirit of God, please um, remind us once again, this world is not our home. Remind us once again that these things are passing away and they will dissolve one day in fervent heat. Help us to realize that our, our home is uh, up yonder, our citizenship in heaven. And our very shortest, the very tiniest portion, sliver of a, of a portion of eternity is spent right here, right now. This is the tiniest portion of our eternity. It's lived right here. And help us, Lord, not to think that, that um, this is all there is or it doesn't get better because this is just the tiniest portion. Lord, help us to, to keep our hearts and minds on, on better things than this old world. And so, uh, dear Father, uh, teach us, we pray tonight. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Now, um, chapter 12 and verse 25, Paul 
sort of starts to summarize and it's a charge, if you will, and he charges right at us. Little pun there, but he says, see that ye refuse not him that speaketh. Well, him that speaketh is Jesus. If you go back to verse 24, it says, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Christ speaks, his blood speaks. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. I think it's a reference here to Jesus. I ask you, how important is Jesus in your life tonight? How important, what an important place does Jesus have in your heart, in your soul? Is he the, uh, the lover of your soul? Is he the first and foremost um, in your life? Because the more we love him, here's what's going to happen. The more we're going to obey him. And he just, Paul just said, see that you refuse not him that speaketh. To refuse him that speaketh would be to maybe turn our ears away, stop up our ears, maybe turn and look the other way. To refuse him that speaketh would suggest that we're not going to listen to what he has to say. We're not going to obey what he has to say. Can I suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that if we do not hearken to what God says, if we do not hearken and obey, then we are the number one losers. We're the number one losers. Uh, Maybe number two loser uh, is those around us because we do affect others, our family and our friends, people at church, people at home. We do have an effect on others. When we do not hear and obey what God has to say, we affect ourselves, we affect others. But listen to this, God also loses. Say, how does God lose? Well, I think he loses out on our obedience. You see, the greatest mind that ever, ever, ever has lived is God's mind. There's no finer mind than God's mind. And he knows all of the details. He knows everything there is to know. There is nothing he does not know. And so he knows the best way to live life. He knows he has the best plan. It's all there. And what we need to do is just do it and obey. And when we do not, we do not obey, say, so, well, wait a minute, some days it's not so easy to obey. I know it. Tell me about it. That's why we need grace, and we're going to get to that. Without grace, there's no way you can obey. You can sort of hear it, but you're not going to live it. And maybe you felt that way. Maybe times you felt powerless to be able to obey God. Maybe you felt that there are bad habits and bad sins in your life that are just kind of eating you up and holding you down. And you feel that you, you can't get any better. Well, without the grace of God, you can't. And none of us can. We're all sort of out of that same you know, Adam, our original father and the fallen nature. And unless we uh, learn to uh, dive into the grace of God, there's no way that we can ever overcome anything. And so here Paul is saying that we, we need to not refuse him that speaketh. Now, in John 14, 15, Jesus said um, that if you love me, you will... Uh, um, keep my commandments. So in other words, the, the more we love him, the more we will obey him. And that's a good measuring stick right there. If ever you want to know how much it is that you love the Lord is how much do you obey him. I believe that God speaks to us through his word when he says here, see that ye refuse not him that speaketh. The word of God, it's the word of God. What does God say? Well, that's why we read what he has to say and his word speaks to us. And so we must not refuse him that speaketh. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and whispers to our heart. 
often telling us what is right and what is wrong. The Holy Spirit will often say to us in quiet whispers and quiet tones, you know, you really ought to obey this. Yeah, yeah, I know. You say, no, seriously, you really ought to give this some some, uh, consideration. That's the Holy Spirit speaking with your heart. You read the Word of God when it says that uh, this is the way, walk ye in it, and this is right and this is wrong. And it becomes more obvious the longer that we know the Lord and the more we walk with Him. And so... Uh, Peter said in 2 Peter 1.19, he said that uh, we would do well to take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. The word of God is that light that shines in a dark old world. My, oh my, this world isn't getting any brighter, is it? Everything, everything, everything. And people I talk to, unsaved people I talk to, all know that something weird is happening and something's coming. They all know that. The whole world is, is very uneasy, very, very tense. And things are happening at a greater pace and uh, greater depths than ever before. It's a wicked world and it's getting worse. And so, anyhow, we're told here, see that ye refuse not him that speaketh. Paul is summarizing his sermon, and there's a charge now. He's bringing a charge to every one of us. He says, now, make sure you don't mess up on this. He says, refuse not him that speaketh. Then he, in verse 25, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth. Say, who's that? He's talking about Moses. That's the context. He's talking about Moses. When Moses was on earth, he was God's mouthpiece to the people. And uh, those who refused to listen and obey Moses, they died without mercy. That's exactly what happened. And so Paul is just bringing this up, and he says, well, now, listen to this here. He says, he says see that refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth. Sometimes Christians even can think they can escape. They think that they can say, oh, well, you know, I'm a weak Christian. God understands. He'll forgive me. He's a good old boy. People around me, they know I'm not a strong Christian. Uh, they'll, they'll just excuse it. And we think we can escape. We cannot escape. Um, we see that illustrated like with uh, children in school. Oh, I'm just not going to do my homework. Nah, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to go outside and play. That's what I'm going to do. Go outside and play. I don't want to do my homework. I got a project. Yeah, I know. That's only one project. Who cares? You know, what, what, what are they going to do? Kill me? <laughs> and then they fail. And then while others pass and move on to the next grade, they fail and have to repeat a grade. You see, uh, now I know that that's not always true in our public school system. I know that. We've got a bit of a, a system that is sadly uh, needing you know, some overhaul and improvement. But the point is, we've got people who think they can sin and get away with it. They think they can do things and not have to answer to, for it. it. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way at all. Um, Paul says, you know, how much more shall not we escape... Uh, if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. And now we've already ascertained that that's Jesus. Just turn back a few pages to chapter 2 of Hebrews. Chapter 2. And I want to remind you of this verse here that we've already studied, and we studied this a year and a half ago, almost. Chapter 2 of Hebrews, look at verse 3. I'd like you to read that out loud together with me. Would you do that, please, everybody? Read it, verse 3 out loud. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? 
How shall we escape? He's writing to believers, born-again believers. And what he's talking about are believers who are neglecting their salvation, believers who are taking it for granted, believers who have been blessed with so great a salvation and yet aren't living properly for the Lord. The uh, illustration I believe I gave you was of a pastor many years ago. I believe it was back in the 60s. And uh, he was... I think it was in the 60s anyhow. It could have been the 50s. I think it was in the 60s. And he, he was not wealthy at all. And uh, he wanted to buy a bicycle for his son. And um, his son wanted a bicycle. And so he uh, scrimped and saved. And I don't know what all he had to do. But he and his wife, uh, they managed to buy this beautiful bicycle for his birthday. I think it was red. And so on his birthday, they presented their boy with this bicycle. And uh, the boy saw it. And, oh, mom, dad and hugged them and he was so happy so happy to have this bicycle and he got on it right away and started riding it up and down the street and uh, everything was great well after about a, a week or so um, I think it was a week or two weeks the dad comes home and he can't get in the driveway because the bicycle his son's bicycle is laying there in the middle of the driveway and so he parked the car and got out and he looked at it and it had been kind of banged up a bunch and there was a spoke broken and there was scuff marks all over that brand new paint and everything like that and uh, the father thought of how hard he had worked and how much he had saved in order to buy that bicycle for his son that was quite a a bit of uh, investment he had in that bicycle and uh, guess what his son did not escape he caught up with his son <laughs> and he said, how could you do this? I, I did this for you. Your mother and I, we did this for you. And uh, you, you appreciated it so much. You told us, you hugged us. And now look what, you know, what, what have you done with this? And it's just sitting there and it's not being taken care of. And so the, the son learned a lesson. And there's an illustration of what happens in our lives, your life and my life, when we neglect our salvation, when we forget that we're now sons and daughters of the king, we're no longer sons and daughters of the devil, we're sons and daughters of God. And when we don't live that way, when we just kind of, you know, like that kid's bicycle, just kind of let it fall over and bang and it breaks a spoke or gets a little dent or scuff in the paint. Oh, well, that's all right. You know, it didn't cost me anything and no skin off my nose. And yet it cost our Heavenly Father everything, everything, the very best he had. And so that's why we have this verse in chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? It's a warning to us Christians. And so that, that over here now, chapter 12 and verse 25, he says, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who, ref, who refused him that spake on earth. That's dear old Moses there. Much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. And so, as you can see right away, this is a charge, isn't it? A charge given right to us. This is not given to unsaved people per se. This is given to saved people. The book of Hebrews is largely written to saved people, although I believe there were some unsaved uh, mixed in there that were uh, struggling and so on, and some backslidden saved and so on, but it's largely the audience is to the saved. Now, verse 26, he says, Whose voice then shook the earth? Now, who might that be? Who do you think? God, that's right. When God spoke to Moses on Sinai, things shook. We studied that last week. 
how a whole lot of darkness and thunderings, I'm sure lightnings and the shaking and the rocks and stuff like that. But I got thinking as I was studying this, I got thinking also of how God shook the earth in the days of Noah. You all know the story of Noah and how that uh, God instructed him to build the ark and for 120 years he was preaching righteousness, trying to get people saved. You would think after 120 years someone would get saved. Someone would get saved. Well, anyhow, the only ones that ended up being saved was Noah and his wife and his three boys and their three wives, eight of them all together. That's it. For 120 years worth of ministry, eight people. Hmm. Now, a lot of people would say, oh, Noah's a failure. Oh, Noah, just write him right off. We'd never support him as a missionary. You know, in 120 years, he only got eight people saved, including himself. Huh. What kind of a missionary is that? Well, I think God had confidence in him because at the end of 120 years, there was this monster great big ship that was built that withstood the, the uh, devastating storm. God shook the whole earth. Now, this comes out again in the next verse here, so I don't want to blow any thunder there, but it's just interesting. He says, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. You see that in verse 26? Once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. Now, for this, I'd like you to keep your finger there in Hebrews and go back to the Old Testament. And uh, not very far back in the Old Testament, the book of Haggai. Haggai. So, um, the last book of the uh, Old Testament is what? Malachi. Malachi. No, Malachi. Next book behind that is what? What is it? Is that what is it? Zechariah, right. And the book behind that is Haggai. Or Haggai, as some say it. Chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. We're going to look at this. Verse 6. Verse 6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once... It is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Um, and then he goes on in verse 7. He talks about the desire of all nations, talking about the tribulation here and the coming of the, the king of kings. And so this is the coming tribulation in chapter 12, verse 26 in Hebrews that Paul is talking about. He's talking about this coming time. Hasn't happened yet. It's coming. We think we're right on the doorstep of it right now, even as we sit in church tonight. It could happen any moment. The coming of the Lord, and then after that, the signing of the peace treaty there with Israel, and then seven years. Seven years tribulation begins when the peace treaty is signed. Did you know that uh, President Trump is now calling for world peace. Um, he's been trying to be, uh, negotiate peace. He says that the peace treaty with Israel is the ultimate deal. That's what he's been calling it. But now, just today, I see in the news he's calling for world peace. World peace. Isn't that very interesting? Boy, oh boy, oh boy, I have never seen a world like I see today. I have never seen things in the condition uh, that, that I see them in today. And um, I am just so encouraged that the coming of our Lord draweth nigh. Folks, we'd better be ready. Make sure your bags are packed. Because at any moment, I think um, the Lord's going to come. And he's going to surprise many, if not most of us. Uh, when we live our lives in the light of his coming, it's going to help us to live clean lives. 
It really will. If we think, oh, my Lord delayeth his coming, what are we going to do? We're going to get involved with things of the world. Not good. Not good, beloved. We're back here in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 26. So he says here, uh, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised. Here's the promise of God saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. This is the coming shaking that's going to happen in the tribulation where God God always shakes out sin and he shakes sense into people's heads. I think that's why God does it. He shakes uh, out sin and he shakes sense into people's heads. In fact, tell you what, <clears throat> let's go to Revelation. We'll come back to Hebrews. Let's go over to Revelation chapter 6. Let's take a quick look at maybe at some of this shaking. The book of Revelation gives us this glimpse of what's going to be happening. But I'll wager you this. The book of Revelation was written not so much for you and I who sit here uh, in comfort before the tribulation. I think this is a roadmap. I think that God is going to use the book of Revelation in the lives of God's people in those seven years because there's going to be a lot of people get saved and they're going to need to know what's coming down the pipe. And we right now today, uh, we, we look forward, we project, you know, we think this, we think that, we've got our thoughts, who the Antichrist will be. Well, I'll tell you folks, when the tribulation comes, those believers are going to know who the Antichrist is. It's going to be no more guesswork. All of our guesses, oh, it could be this guy, it could be that guy. I'll tell you, they are going to know because they're going to see him on TV. They're going to see him in person. They're going to point to him. They're gonna, everyone is going to know. The whole world is going to know about this guy. <clears throat> and they're going to know what to do because they're going to have the, the book of Revelation to help and comfort them and strengthen them and show them what to do, what not to do. Talks in there about the mark of the beast, the 666 thing. We've got our thoughts. Now, what could that be? Say, let me tell you something. It's almost a joke. You know, for uh, I don't know how many years now, Christians have been saying, wow, what could that 666? Well, you know, if we go back to the Hebrew and we, we look at the Hebrew letters and convert those, and or if we go back to the Greek and we look at those Greek letters, and some people say, oh, no, we have to look at technology with the ones and the zeros, all of the, the internet and computer things like that. Well, wouldn't it be funny if in the tribulation the 666 was an actual literal 666? And that's all it ever was. You see, today, it means nothing to us. We have nothing to relate it to. 666, well, what's that related to? What does it mean? What does it stand for? We don't know. But in the tribulation time, something is going to happen where 666 is going to be very relevant. Uh, I tell you, we moved here, British Columbia, uh, 19 years ago. We had never heard of a thing called Google. It was not known. It was not in our vocabulary. And uh, I think it's only about two years before that. No one had ever heard of Google. It had not been invented. But now, try and show me a place in the world where they don't know about Google. Google's everywhere, right? But you see, 21 years ago, if I, if I suddenly came and talked to you about Google, you'd look at me and say, what are you talking about? What is that baby talk? What are you trying to say? What is this Google thing? Because you'd, you'd have nothing to relate it to. And that's how we are with the 666. But in the tribulation, the believers will know what the 666 is and they'll understand the relationship between 666 and the beast, the Antichrist. They'll, they'll see it. They'll understand it. That's why they need the book of Revelation. Now we're going to chapter 6 here, Revelation chapter 6. Please look at verse 12. 
It says, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. Boy, there's a lot of earthquakes now, isn't there? And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it rolled, it is rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne from the wrath of the lamb for great is the day of his wrath uh, for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand now there's a shaking right there and that well may be the fulfillment of, of uh, Haggai chapter 2 verse 6. That may be it right there. Time per- prohibits us from looking at uh, chapter 12 and some verses there. But please go back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. What an amazing book this Hebrews is. So he says here uh, that we are not to refuse him that speaketh. Now He says he's going to shake the whole world. It's coming. Verse 27. He gives a little commentary on what he said. And this word, yet once more, those three words, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken. So God's going to shake, and the things that are shaken are going to be taken away. That's what the divine interpretation is. Scripture comments on Scripture. And this word out of Haggai chapter 2 verse 6 yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken an unsaved world is going to be removed this is what's going to happen folks this is exactly what is coming down the pipe this old world as we know it is not going to last forever it is going to be removed now knowing what God is going to do to this world let me ask you is it really wise for us to put our roots down deep into this world knowing what God's going to do to this world is it really a smart thing for us to put down our roots and to hold on tightly to this world what does the Bible say turn to the right go to 2nd Peter 2nd Peter chapter 3 2nd Peter chapter 3 now remember Paul was quoting Haggai chapter 2 verse 6 and he was saying that God is going to shake this world again. Now the first shaking uh, I kind of think that it was in the days of Noah with the flood. I think that that's how God shook and took away you know the wickedness. But he's going to shake the world again and it's going to happen tribulation. Now 2nd Peter chapter 3 verse 11 And I'd like you to read out loud with me. I'm going to ask you to read again, verse 11. Read it out loud with me now. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? So getting back to my question. Knowing what God's going to do with this world, knowing that he is going to shake it, it's going to dissolve in fervent heat, knowing that everything is going to be burned to a crisp. Is it a smart thing? Is it a wise thing for us to get heavily involved in this world? 
Is it really smart of us to go the way the world goes and say, okay, well, now you want to get your uh, education so you can get a job with a big company and make a big salary and make big investments and, and have a, you know, big nest egg or something for when you retire so that you can retire in wealth and comfort and this is what the world says. That's what the world thinks. That's what the world has its eyes on. But if Jesus comes for us at midnight, the stroke of midnight tonight, where, where is this big salary? Huh? What's going to happen to this big nest egg? What's going to happen to these so-called retirement days yet coming and this, this feathery nest and spend our days in comfort or something like that? It's not going to happen. It ain't going to happen at all. You know, you could be the richest man on the world, but you're on the Titanic. What good is all of that wealth? What good is it to be uh, spending your days on the Titanic in the, the upper of the upper class, where everything is gold and silver and polished gems and stones, and you eat of the finest foods on the finest platters, and you have uh, table waiters uh, waiting on you hand and foot, knowing that in just a few hours it's all going to be over? What good is it all? is no good. We live, as it were, on the Titanic. This world is like the Titanic. Now, I know I sound like doom and gloom. I know that. But I only sound like doom and gloom to those whose eyes are fixed on this world. They're fixed on the banister and the railing of the Titanic. Their eyes are fixed upon the gold and the silver uh, found down in the cargo hold of the Titanic. Their, their eyes are fixed upon this great big luxury yacht, this unsinkable palace on the seas. Their eyes are fixed on that. And anyone whose eyes are fixed upon this world, they're going to call me a kook. They're going to call me doom and gloom because I'm saying that this isn't, this isn't going to stay. This, this world is going. God is going to shake this world. That's his promise. And his promise has never, ever been broken. It will happen. And now the charge for you and I, in the light of this, what manner of people ought we to be in all godliness and conversation here on earth? And so <clears throat> let's go back to chapter 12. So he says, And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken. And so that's the things in this world. Uh, he goes on, he says, as of things that are made. Well, the earth has been made. You know that house you live in? What's going to happen to your house? It's not going to last. It's going to dissolve. It's going to get shaken. What about that car you drive? What about um, those um, nice furnishings you've got? What about the, uh, uh, the gold and silver and uh, the decorations we wear on our wrists and around our necks and on our earrings, um, uh, our earlobes, I should say, and, and on our, our fingers and toes and so on? What's going to happen to all those things? It's all going to be dissolved. None of us are going to leave this world and take anything with us. It's all going to be left behind, right? Howard Hughes was one of the world's wealthiest men at uh, the peak of his life. He was one of the world's first modern, one of the modern world's first billionaires. I know that in eons past, you had men like Solomon that were worth, you know, a trillion dollars, that sort of thing in today's economy. But one of the first modern billionaires, to be able to say they're a billionaire, one of them was Howard Hughes, another J. Paul Getty, the big oil baron, and there was a, others now, there's a lot of billionaires now. Millionaires are a dime a dozen. Billionaires, there's, there's a whole bunch of them too. 
But uh, if people wondered, well, how much, how much money does Howard Hughes have? Oh, Howard Hughes, Howard Hughes, all that money. Oh, boy, he could buy anything, buy up Las Vegas. He'd buy TWA, Transworld Airlines. He, he had the Hughes uh, 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 tool and die company. And he made his, um, uh, his, his billions. And the people wonder, well, how much, how much does he have? And uh, one man said, well, this is after Hughes died. And when Hughes died, he looked really weird. He didn't cut his hair. He had weird fears and phobias and stuff and let his fingernails grow. And he had a lot of other creepy things about the guy. And he was hiding away. He was so afraid of disease and germs and everything. What a way to live your life. Anyhow, he finally died. And um, one man said, I know how much he's left behind. And they said, how? How much? And he said, all of it. He left it all behind. Remember reading in Luke 16, the rich man in hell? <laughs> Same thing. He left it all behind. Not one penny. Nothing. 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 Uh, not even the gold out of his teeth could he take with him. Nothing. Nothing. And that's going to be exactly the same with us, folks. We cannot take any of these uh, trinkets or prized possessions with us. You may be in a nice house with a nice car, wearing nice clothes, eating nice food, and lounging in nice furniture. You may have a lot of nice things. But you know, that's all they are, are things. And I'll tell you something, every one of them is temporary. Your house, that's only temporary. Oh, but I own my house outright. I bank doesn't owe, own any of it. I own 100% of my house. Yeah, you own a temporary. It's 100% temporary. That car you drive is only temporary. And everything, everything you have is temporary. That's it. Now, the world doesn't understand that, and they cling to that, you know, you know with all of their might. But, but this anchor is gold-plated. It's going to sink just like a regular uh, iron anchor is going to... Well, this anchor is made of pure gold. It's going to sink too. And they're clinging to their anchors. We need to cling to the life boy, the life boy, the Son of God, Jesus. And so, anyhow, he says, um, uh, the removal of things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. The saved and the new heaven, the new earth, the heavenly Jerusalem, all those things are going to remain. Verse 28, we have to hurry. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. We received this kingdom when we got saved. When you got saved and born again, you entered into this kingdom and it was made partially yours. You have a, uh, uh, a hand in this uh, uh, kingdom. It, it partly belongs to you. Um, I have to pause the sermon. Stephen, I don't know what happened, but these have just shut off. Would you uh, come down and click them on, please? These air conditioners, they're shut off. I don't know why. I see people fanning themselves. So, uh, yeah, come down and help us out, would you? Sorry I had to stop the sermon. I hope you don't mind that. But uh, just trying to uh, see to your uh, every need and comfort here at church. Well, anyhow, let's get back here. This is important. Um, he says that we have received the kingdom which cannot be moved. Jesus said in Luke chapter 17 that the kingdom of God is within men. When you get saved, you have now the kingdom. And listen to this. You have the king of kings coming and living inside of you. Isn't that good news? You have the king of the king of the kingdom is now in your heart. That's how much you've received the kingdom. It doesn't start when you die. It doesn't begin when you get to heaven. It began the very moment you got saved. Do you remember back when you got saved? How many months ago was it? How many years ago was it? 
How many decades ago was it that you got saved? What year was it? What was the month? Maybe you don't quite remember the month or the day, but you know you're saved. Well, whenever it was you got saved and born again, that's when you got the kingdom. The kingdom, in part, was transferred to you. We received this when we got saved. It's ours now. And because we already have the kingdom, and as proof, as proof that we have the kingdom, we can now ask God to give us the next thing in the verse. Look at the words, let us have grace. Now, I made mention earlier that if, uh, if we love him, we'll obey him. You remember I mentioned that right at the beginning. If we love him, we'll obey him. But there's no way we can obey him without the grace. You have to have the grace. See, what is this grace? This grace is God's divine influence. It's his power. It's his blessing. It is the opposite of our own works. If you're trying to read the Bible in your own strength, your own wisdom, well, I think I can figure this out here, you will fail. If you're trying to teach a Sunday school class in your own strength, well, I think I'm smart enough, I'm old enough in the Lord, I can read these books, I can make up some notes, I think I can wow them, you will fail. The only way that we can serve God is with the grace. That's why it's there for us. And the only ones who can get, ask for and get the grace are those that have the kingdom. If you have Christ in your heart, then you have the legal right to go to God and ask for the grace. And this is definite proof that you're in the kingdom. When God gives you, in answer to your prayer, the grace that you so desperately need. Now, um, why do we need all of this divine power, this, all this influence? Again, some Christians don't quite get it. And they think that it's to make our lives happy. They think that we're to go to God and ask, them, uh, ask God for grace and ask God for things in order to give us peace in our life, in order so that we live peaceable and happy lives and that we're healthy and wealthy and wise and so that we can live in comfort and, and be protected all our days. That's not the plan of God. The plan of God is very simply this, in the next few words, whereby we may serve God. That's why God will give you the grace. And if you're looking for grace for any other reason, oh God, please give me grace to win the lotto on Friday night. It's going to be 50 million. I don't know what it's going to be, folks. I don't follow that stuff. I just picked a number out of thin air. Please don't think that I follow that stuff because I don't, all right? That's, that's like when they tell you about a, a drug, you know, a new drug, wonder drug on the market. And they, they tell you like 10 seconds of this wonder drug. Then they, they spend 40 seconds saying this could cause blindness. This, this could cause death. This, this could cause pimples in people who already are prone to acne. And on and on the, the disclaimer goes, right? That's my little disclaimer. I, don't, I, don't, I want to stay away from that stuff. That stuff is not of the Lord. That stuff's of the world and the flesh and the devil. But anyhow, uh, the, the only reason God will give us the grace is that we may serve him. If you are not serving him, you do not have his grace because he does not give his grace to those who want to use it for selfish reasons. If we want grace in order so that we'll be healed and we'll be blessed and we'll have nice things and so on, we will not ever have God's grace. But if we want God's grace because we want to serve God, we realize that our lives are short and we don't know how much time we have left. We realize that we've got a blessed privilege to be able to enter into service of God and to spend our lives, no matter how many months or weeks or days or years we have left, to be able to spend our lives in something profitable, to be able to serve God, the King of Kings. 
but we can't do it without God's grace. Then God says, yes, now I will give you my grace. Now you're asking according to my will and I will give you that which you need. You see, this is the key for you and I. This is what we're, we're, we're going to need in order to hit the ball out of the park, in order to, to make the home run, in order to bring home the bacon. I don't know whoever came up with that expression there, but just kind of that idea in order to accomplish something for God. I'll tell you this, there's a lot of Christian activity going on all over the world, but a lot of it, and I could be wrong, but I would say most of it is done according to the flesh according to the wisdom of the Christian. And he or she thinks it needs to be done this way, and he or she rolls up their sleeves and gets in there and makes things happen. Well, this stuff is going to account for nothing when come, ju- come reward time, judgment time for us and reward time. It counts for nothing because it's not done in God's grace. The only successful way is God's way. The only successful will is God's will. The only successful plan is God's plan. And the only successful power or or grace, if you will, is God's, not ours. And so God's work must be done God's way, and it must be done in God's strength. Does that make sense? Because nothing else is acceptable. You see, look at it again. He says here, Um, whereby we may serve God acceptably. You see that? There's a lot of people trying to serve God, but it's not acceptable. Uh, There is no other acceptable way to serve God except by His grace. And I'll tell you one easy way to get God's grace is to realize how helpless you are. and, And many of you have already done it. You've been asked to give a testimony. You've been asked maybe to uh, uh, teach a, uh, uh, a little Bible study. Or listen, you've even been asked to lead in prayer. And for the first time, you were scared to death. You thought you were going to faint and swoon. They'd think you were dead and carry you off to embalm you. And you, know, you, you thought, oh no, I can't do this. This is going to be more than, than I may be. And you'd cry out, oh God, please, please help me. Help me. You know what happened right there? an answer to prayer. That's what happened. Because you recognize your helplessness, your poverty, your bankruptcy, your brokenness, your inability. And you were scared and you cried out to the living God for His grace. And what happened? He gave you that grace. And you say, I don't know how I did it, but man, I I got through that. And I was able to lead in prayer and I was able to teach a Bible study. And boy, you know, when the pastor asked me if I would please lead this soul to Christ, and I I just thought I was going to die. I need someone to bring, you know, the, the paddles clear and bring me back to life. And I cried out of my heart, Lord, help me. I'm gonna, I don't want to lead this guy to hell. I, boy, I need your help, Lord. I need to lead him to Jesus. And you cried out in your heart, and God helped you, and that guy got saved. But then what happens? Down the road a week, a month, a year, hey, I'm pretty good at this. I think I, I can handle this. So you need a Bible study done? You need someone to lead in prayer? You need a soul winner? I think I'm your man. And what happens? The grace of God is gone. Now we're depending on our own steam not on God's mighty power. That's what happens. That's what happens in my life. And I know it can happen in your life too. That's why we need God's grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably. Cain and Abel illustrate the acceptable way and the unacceptable way of serving God. And so folks, that's why we pray these words, Thy will be done. So he finishes off verse 28. He says, we may serve God acceptably with reverence. Now reverence means respect and honor and godly fear. 
Listen, godly fear, I've been struggling with a way to communicate a, a, um, an explanation of those two words, godly fear. What does that mean? I suggest to you it means a heavenly carefulness to the smallest detail of God's will. I would like to suggest that is a reasonable definition or explanation of godly fear. I'll repeat it. A heavenly carefulness to the smallest detail of God's will. Say, why? Why is that? Because we love Him so much. We love God so much with all our heart and mind and soul, which is the first commandment, by the way. But we love Him so much and we, we do not want to displease Him and we want to carry out His will. We want to do everything He wants us to do. When you first took on your job, you worked for the, uh, the big ABC corporation or something, you got hired on your first day at work and your boss said, okay, I want you to do this, this. And you said, yes, sir, boss. Now, make sure I got it right. You want me to do this? Does that include these details? It does. What about this? No, it doesn't. Okay, that's off the list. And you want me to do this over here? Does that include this? Oh, it doesn't. Could you explain to me, sir, what it means? It means this and this. Got it. Okay, let me repeat back to you. Got it. And away you went and you did a first-class job. You were careful to the smallest detail. And I think that's what godly fear is. That we may serve God with reverence. That's the respect and honor he deserves every day. And godly fear. Let's live our lives so that even the details are done right. And then he finishes in verse 29 with these simple words. For our God is a consuming fire. Very short verse here. But that's how he finishes this charge. <clears throat> this, by the way, is a quote out of Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'll read for you. Verses 23-24. Moses said, Take heed unto yourselves, lest ye forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make you a graven image or the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God hath forbidden thee. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Remember that all our works will be judged by Jesus Christ one day. Yes, you really will stand before Jesus as a saved person. You won't be judged for your sin. That's been judged on Calvary. Jesus took your judgment for sin. But you will be judged for your works in life. Everything you've spent your time and talents and treasures on, everything you've put your hand to, you're going to be judged for these things before the, the throne of Jesus Christ. And he's going to be looking for what he can reward. So he's going to take your works and he's going to put them in the fire. And if anything survives the fire, then he can reward you. That's why we have that analogy of wood, hay, and stubble. Now, is that going to survive the fire? Yes or no? No. Wood, hay, and stubble have a funny habit of being consumed by the fire. Then you have gold, silver, precious stone. Will they survive the fire? Yes or no? Yes, they will. Yes, they will, because the fire cannot touch them. And so likewise, in your life and my life, we'll stand before Jesus. He will take the, the things we've done in life, and he'll put them through the fire. And the fire will determine if they're reward-worthy or not. And what he's looking for is what he can reward. And so it's just like supposing you took all of your trinkets and things and brought them to the junk dealer and said, I want to cash out of life. Here's everything. I've taken all my household stuff, all my goods. Here we go. And tell me, uh, what can you give me for them? And he says, well, you know, the old undershirts and 
you know, shorts and sandals. They're worth nothing. They're, you can get them a dime a dozen off of uh, Amazon Prime. They'll even deliver them to your house. So that's worth nothing at all here. And this here, you know, these Harlequin romances, that's nothing. And these uh, Reader's Digest, that's nothing. You know, throw out all this stuff and we're saying, oh, but those are, those are good books. And oh, those were my sandals. And oh, those are my favorite t-shirt and so on. That's worth nothing, worth nothing, worth nothing. Ah, oh, here is something I can reward. And that's what's going to happen in heaven. The things that are wood, hay, and stubble, even though we might love them. Oh, that was my favorite wood, my favorite stubble. Whoa. And yet it didn't survive the fire. But what did survive the fire? That's what Jesus is going to reward. That's what we ought to be thinking about. What I'm about to do, is that going to survive the fire or is that going to get burned to a crisp? Hmm. The place I'm about to go, can Jesus bless that and reward that? What I'm about to do with my money, have I prayed about it? Have I put it before the Lord? Have I asked him his wisdom? Is this something that God can bless or is this going to burn right up? Then a lot of people lose their money in the stock market, right? Lots of people lost millions, their life savings, everything you can think of on crazy things, including these... Um, Oh, these uh, email scams uh, where you get this email. I am Prince Zuzu, and I have been ousted from my country, and I have chosen you. I want to partner with you. I have $20 million, and I will give you 10% if you will uh, just uh, hold on to this money for me. And so uh, write me your name and address and include your bank information so that I can deposit this uh, into your account. And so the stupid ones uh, just hand it all over. And the next day they say, hey, what happened to all the money in my bank account? Oh, <laughs> gone, gone. What a foolish investment. Folks, it's very foolish for you and I to invest in this world. This world is not our home. You ought to be investing up in heaven where moth and rust doth not corrupt, where thieves break, do not break through and steal. You ought to be investing up in the bank of heaven. That's where, where your treasures ought to be, not here on earth. I encourage you to invest the time, the talents, and treasures that God has blessed you with into the will of God and let God reward you one day. So, in conclusion, the entire chapter 12 Verses 1 to 4, we learn we are to run the race God has set before us. Verses 5 to 11, we are to endure his chastening, as it only makes us better. Verses 12 to 24, we are to order our lives aright. And verses 25 to 29, we are to listen to what he says and obey it, because everything in this world is going to be destroyed. You need to ask yourself this question, how is my walk with the Lord today? How is it that I'm doing this week, this month, so far this year? Have I let my light shine? Do I have any, any fruit that I can present before him? Is there anything that I can, if God were to call me home, would, I, would there be any jewels in my crown? Are you living for Jesus, a life that is true? And can it be seen in all that you do? Let's pray.